We're going to be talking about abiding in Christ in conflict and adversity. And again, we're going to look at this from the perspective of, especially when you're doing some aspect of ministry. And uh, I'll make you aware of some things right from the beginning as it relates to that. But let's all begin with a word of prayer. Let's bow our heads and let's get started. Father in heaven, we are very grateful for the privilege to come together as a family to study your words of truth. We pray in the name of Jesus that you would be in our midst and that you'll speak to our hearts. Grant us your Holy Spirit, Lord, and may he give us understanding of the things that we need most. Is our prayer we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go to Matthew 28. I want to show you something. Go to Matthew, the 28th chapter, and I want you to watch what the Bible says here. Matthew, we're looking at what chapter? 28. Very good. And when you get there, just let me know by saying amen. Okay. Every single one of us, unless you are not a baptized member of God's church, every single one of us are called to ministry. What kind of ministry? It varies, but all of us are called to ministry. So let's look at it from scripture. In Matthew 28, Jesus gave a command to the disciples. The the command that he gave to the disciples is found in verses uh, 19 and 20, and it's the gospel commission, and here's what it says. It says, go ye therefore and do what? Teach. Now, the word teach in the Greek is a Greek word, matheteu, and what it means is to make disciples. So what Jesus was doing was commanding the disciples, go make more disciples. Okay? So he says, go ye therefore and teach or make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Then it says, teaching them to observe, how much? Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the world. Now, The same way that Jesus called the 12, eventually it became 11 because we know Judas apostatized. But in either case, when Jesus called the 12, they were all called in the same way that you and I are called. So let's watch this. Let's go to Luke 9. And I want you to watch how Jesus called them. And in like manner, he calls us. So we're going to look at Luke, the ninth chapter. And I want you to watch what it says as we consider verses 1 and 2. Luke 9 Verses 1 and 2. Again, when you're there, please say amen. Amen. All right. So look at this. Luke 9, verses 1 and 2. The Bible says in Luke 9, starting at verse 1, Then he called his twelve disciples together and gave them power and authority over all devils and to cure diseases. And he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. How many disciples were mentioned here? It was all 12, right? How many of them were given power to heal diseases? All of them. How many of them were medical professionals? None. None of the 12 were medical professionals. Luke came in later. You understand that? So God literally commissioned them. He he commissioned them that he said, listen, I am calling you. But the call to come in was always the call to go out. Jesus called them to himself for the purpose of giving them authority, giving them power that they might go out. Before any of you are members of God's church, you should be disciples of Jesus Christ. Do you understand that? A lot of us, we function like members. You know what I'm saying? You ever had a membership at a gym? You know, how many times you show up? How many times do you participate? That's the key. When we, when we have a membership mentality, we actually can feel good about just having a membership, even though we're not doing the thing that was the purpose of the membership. You get that? That's the reason why I don't like encouraging us to simply remember that we're members. You are all called to be disciples. And the good news is that all disciples work. All disciples do ministry. That's what we read. It was all 12. Eventually, when the 70 came in, it was all 70. Eventually, when 120 came in, it was 120. You understand that? Everybody went to work. So literally, if you are a baptized member of God's church, you are a minister. You have been called to do some type of ministry. Now, again, there's various types of ministries. You got uh, evangelists, you got pastors, you got teachers, you got all sorts of different groups that can function in different ways. But the key is is that I need each and every one of us to understand you have all been called to some type of ministry. 
You've been called to serve. You've been called not merely to come in and enjoy a membership, but you've been called to come in, be trained, and be equipped to fulfill the commission. You got that? When I joined the church, it was not clearly taught to me that I was meant to be a disciple, to be a worker. That was not really pushed to me at all, not much at all, even though that's what I became. This is where I come from. So I'm the guy, and you know, it's so sad that the sunlight and everything kind of blocks it, but nevertheless, you know, I'm this guy right here. This was a hip-hop group that I was a part of called Quiet Storm. And uh, we called ourselves Quiet Storm because we said we walk soft, but we hit hard. And so we called ourselves Quiet Storm. And we would go to lots of clubs and parties and all of these different things. And eventually, I started to go to Manhattan, New York, and, and you know, just started to audition to work with a lot of uh, hip-hop and R&B artists. So I started working with people like Queen Latifah, Brandy, Heavy D. These were actually people that I worked with. And um, I started to dance on stage and to perform with them in music videos and things of that nature. Um, this is when I was in London, and I was with Brandy uh, in London. And that, you know, it's a shame that the sunlight is on that one. This, this, Y'all could have seen what I looked like with hair, because that, that, that's, a, that's a shot of me with hair. But nevertheless, you know, that was the older life. You know, that's the life that I was coming from. Um, started to work with a lot of guys, Buster Rhyme and Tribe Called Quest. Wu-Tang Clan, a lot of these different groups. And I was very, very caught up into the world, caught up into hip-hop culture, and really buying into it to the point that even when I would take pictures, you know, that would be like my image. You know what I'm saying? It's like a brother trying to look like a thug, trying to look like some tough guy. And God saw the foolishness that I was caught up in. And he sent a message, a message that captivated my mind. And that was this third angel's message captivated my mind. Never heard anything like it. I thought that Christians were basically a bunch of happy people that don't know why they're happy. Just a bunch of confused folks. Just a bunch of emotionally roller coaster type people. One minute they're happy, next minute they're not, and they go through all of their drama in the name of Jesus. And I had no desire for that. I wanted discipline. I wanted knowledge. I wanted understanding. And uh, Islam is what attracted me for a period of time, especially the nation of Islam. You know, you think of people like Malcolm X and Louis Farrakhan and Elijah Muhammad and all these folks. That's what I got caught up into because I felt they were disciplined. Obviously, I was a black man, and they used to teach that the Bible was a book of prejudice. They would say the Bible's a white man's book, and the reason they said that is because, think about it, they said the angels are white, the patriarchs are white, the prophets are white, the apostles are white, Jesus is white. They said the only black guy in the Bible was Simon of Cyrene, the guy who carried Jesus' cross. And they would say the Bible is a bigoted book, and so I bought into that for a period of time. And so therefore, I wanted nothing to do with Christianity whatsoever. One of the things I love about God is he really meets you where you're at. And so what God did is God knew that I had these prejudices and all these things. And so Malcolm X was my hero. So, you know, there was a picture of a minister, a flyer that came to me. And there's a picture of a minister. And the picture of the minister on the flyer, he looked just like Malcolm X to me. And I was like, man, this brother looks deep. Maybe he got something to say. So it was a tent meeting 15 minutes from my house, and I went to go hear it, and the subject that evening was the African-American and the pig. So I was like, Afrocentricity in the Bible? Really? You know, I mean, this stuff like blew me away. So he started walking through the scriptures and showing me these things. So that was the first time I realized, okay, Christians actually study. They, there is a degree of intelligence in Christianity. They actually study and intelligently say what they believe. That got my attention. That's where I was. It got my attention. And so I had to get over my bigotry issue. So this was seven-day Adventist. This is the first time I got introduced to seven-day Adventist. And so what God did to help me get over my bigotry issue was four books were given to me when I joined the church, when I got baptized in 1992. The first book was called Creeping Compromise. Second book, Enemy at the Gate. Third book, Reaping the Whirlwind. Fourth book, Answers to Difficult Bible Texts. They were all written by Joe Cruz. So I started reading the book, and I said, man, this book is really powerful. And uh, I thought the book was so powerful. My mind was so shallow and so retarded on understanding or having good reasoning that I actually believe that you can't be deep unless you're black. 
So I used to think anybody who writes anything deep, preaches anything deep, or anything, got to be a black guy. Can't be a white guy. White people are shallow. That's what I felt. So I'm reading all four of these books, and I'm like, man, this Joe Cruz guy is deep. And so one morning, I get up, and I turn on my favorite channel at the time, BET, Black Entertainment Television. But when I turned BET on, I saw a white gentleman, older looking, silverish hair, and he had a whiteboard and he wrote four things on the whiteboard. He wrote 1260, 538 to 1798. He had the word remnant, and then he had Revelation 12:17. Immediately ripe, wiping the crust from my eyes, I said, hey, that's Adventist language. I mean, I just knew it. I said, that is SDA language all day long. 1260, 538 to 1798, Revelation 12, 17, and the word remnant. I was like, oh, no, this is SDA. So I'm like, hmm. And this guy starts breaking it all down. And next thing you know, I'm looking like, well, this is interesting. This is a white brother breaking down the word of God in a very deep way. And the next thing you know, his name pops up on the screen, Joe Cruz. And I was like, what? I mean, I couldn't believe it. I said, Joe Cruz, the white brother? No way. And I mean, that is how God killed my bigotry. Did it all in one shot. Isn't that beautiful? I said, God is no respecter of persons. I mean, this is clear as day. God can bless anybody. And from that day forward, I became a man of all nations. Joined the church. Used to come to church dressed like this. Used to have on my oversized hoodie, baggy jeans, and my Timberland boots, and I would walk into church every Sabbath, and people would say, Brother Lemon, you gotta wear a suit. I said, where's that in the Bible? I said, I said you taught me to prove everything from Scripture. I said, where's that in the Scripture? What, you know, what? And they were stuttering and everything. I said, well, until you finish stuttering, I will be coming back in my jeans. <laughs> and so I would come back week after week, and eventually a wise woman came to me, and she said, Brother Lemon, hey, you know what? I, I had something that I wanted to know if you could satisfy my curiosity. And I was like, you know, she was the pastor's wife. And, you know, you, I, I knew enough to know you respect the pastor's wife. So I was like, yes, Sister Stevenson, how can, I, how can I satisfy your curiosity? She said, stand right there. She went into the pastor's office, came out with a box, and had a suit in it. She bought me a suit from Sims. And you got to understand, back in the days in 1992, Sims was like, you know, a nice store. I mean, you know, they had expensive suits there. So I'm like, hold up. You bought me a suit? Yes, I did. And I was just like, so she said, I want you to satisfy my curiosity. Would you wear it next week? And I was like, sure. So I come to church the next Sabbath, got my suit on. And I had to admit, I was like, man, I feel kind of good. You know, this feels different. You know, it's just, I've never, I don't wear suits. So, I mean, I'm wearing a suit. I'm like, man, I feel like I'm going through a personality change, feeling different, feeling like authoritative and, you know, dignified. And next thing you know, she comes through the church and she looks at me and she's like, hey, you know, this looks wonderful. And she starts telling me about I'm a man of influence, coming in the church, etc. So what eventually happened? Yes, I started to go ahead and wear suits. And I started to like wearing my Sabbath suits, and I started to study a little bit more about the priestly garments, read volume two, the testimonies, every person should have a, a suit set aside just for the Sabbath. And, you know, I started reading, and I said, all right, got it. So now I'm in the church. When I joined the church, I was very excited. I embrace the reality that God has called me out of something. Go to 1 Peter 2. Let's take a look at it. I embrace this reality. 1 Peter chapter 2. In 1 Peter, the second chapter, I want you to watch what the Bible says here. 1 Peter chapter 2. And we're going to consider verse 9. And the Bible says in 1 Peter, the second chapter, in the ninth verse... God admonishes us. He wants to remind us of something. And this is what he says. He says, but ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood and holy nation, a peculiar people that we are called to do something. What are we called to do? Show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, this verse I took seriously. Well, if God called me out of darkness and called me into his marvelous light, then you know what? I need to go share this with my friends. Immediately, I went into personal 
ministry. The reason why this is important is, again, notice the quote from Gospel Workers, page 45, paragraph 1. A man is no sooner converted than in his heart is born a desire to make known to others what a precious friend he has found in Jesus. The saving and sanctifying truth cannot be shut up in his heart. This is what God always intended when somebody was to become baptized and to join his church. God never intended that ministers should go around coercing you, giving you rewards, and begging you to go out into the field. And I don't do that. And I refuse to do that. And I work right now at a church where I'm an assistant to the pastor. I'm not going to beg anybody to go in the field. If I got to beg you to go into the field, you'll probably make a mess in the field anyhow. You need to understand what you got. And the sooner you understand what you got, listen, ladies, I'm not trying to stereotype you, but I'm just saying it just so happens to be so consistent with the sisters. If a woman finds out that there is a good sale either on shoes or purses, <laughs> nobody needs to tell her, you know, you should tell your friends about that. That sister will not only get one for herself, she will probably get it for others or she'll call and say, girl, you need to get over here because they got five more or they got such and such. The sale ends tomorrow. It, we know how when we come in contact with good information, we know how to instinctively, I got to go tell somebody else about this. We already understand that. And so it is that God is trying to say, listen, what we do in that which is carnal, certainly we should do with that which is spiritual and eternal. If you really understand what you have, you can't keep your mouth shut. You just can't. And therefore, what is the reality? The reality, why Pastor Alvin earlier today in Sabbath school, when he's saying, you know, you know, if, if you know, we got to go out and witness and this, that and the other. Show me a person who struggles with witnessing or is not witnessing. And I will show you somebody that does not understand the gift they have. God wants us to understand that if you really know what you have, you cannot keep it to yourself. You see, either this is the statement of a little old lady from the 1800s or this is the testimony of Jesus. Jesus himself says a man is no sooner converted than in his heart is born a desire to make known to others what a what kind of friend? What a precious friend he has found in Jesus. And I love that closing sentence. The saving and sanctifying truth, it can't. It cannot be shut up in his heart. It just can't. And so I'd like to submit unto you. you listen, like I said in the divine hour, I really mean it. I am convinced we don't understand what was done for us. We don't understand the length, the depth, and the breadth of what was done so you could wake up every morning and, and actually have health and actually have the opportunity to experience salvation and to be able to have love and to be able to communicate with others in love. We don't understand how much it cost for us to have that gift. And that's why I always encourage people, study the cost of the cross. Don't just study the cross, because I was talking with a sister earlier, and she said, Brother Lemon, I'm gonna be honest with you. I need to come back to this, because sometimes, and tell me if some of you aren't, aren't experiencing this, she said, sometimes studying the cross gets boring. It can get boring. After a while, you kind of say, is there anything more? Okay, okay, he died for me, I, I got it. And the truth of the matter is, no, I don't think we get it. I don't think we really spend time meditating on what really took place. And that's all that earlier today was. It was just given this little snapshot of, of this council of peace having this dialogue about what was going to be done for a bunch of unworthy people. And so God really wants us to understand that this should be the fruit of one who comes in the church. Now, we're also told in Christ's Object Lessons, page 191, every soul. How many souls? Every soul whom Christ has rescued is called to do what? Work in his name for the saving of the lost. This work had been neglected in Israel. Is it not neglected today by those who profess to be Christ followers? You know, uh, even the homeschooling mother, I believe in homeschooling. I firmly believe in it. I believe in true education versus false education. 
But my brothers and sisters, even that homeschooling mother needs to understand two very important points. The first point, your children are literally souls that need salvation. Our children are not born saved. They need to accept Christ and they need to follow him. And so the children should be the first mission word. That's point number one. In other words, your goal is not just to take a secular school structure and bring it into your home and call it homeschooling. That is not what God has given. Homeschooling in the eyes of God is a means of evangelism in winning the children to Jesus. That's homeschooling. And then everything entailed in homeschooling is, you know, all of these wonderful things that we talk about, everything from true education, the mental, physical, spiritual development of the individual, etc. But all of it's designed to win the souls and to bring them to Jesus. That's point number one. But then point number two is that even when you have children, that gives you and I no right to say I have no time to do anything else outside of my home. Write this down, Welfare Ministry, WM, Welfare Ministry, page 120. And it says in Welfare Ministry, page 120, that the mother who teaches her children at home are to train her children to be helpers to mother as she goes and seeks the lost. So even in homeschooling, the children are to be trained that they can be helpers to mother as she goes and wins souls. So the first thing we need to understand very, very clearly is that when you and I come into the church, when you and I accept the faith of Jesus, when we decide to become Seventh-day Adventist Christians and to take hold of this blessed banner of the first, second, and third angel, God says then you need to understand that you have been enlisted in something very special. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 2 and take a look for yourself. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, God actually uses... Military language. You are soldiers. Notice what the Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 2. So in other words, when you get baptized, you've joined an army. You've joined the military of some kind. And so I want you to watch this. In 2 Timothy, notice what the Bible says in chapter 2. When you get there, let me know by saying amen. amen. All right, now take a look. 2 Timothy chapter 2, we're going to go ahead and start at verse 1. Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Now watch. Thou therefore, what does he encourage them to endure? Endure hardness as a good what? As a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life. Why? That he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. Do you know everything that you do in the name of obedience? When somebody asks you, why do you do what you do? Our answer is very simple. That we might please him who has called me to be his soldier. That's why I keep Sabbath. That's why I eat a whole food plant-based diet. That's why I believe in practicing good principles in dress. I do all of that. Why? Because, let me tell you something, when you're in love with somebody, you like to put smiles on their face. Isn't that something? When you're in love with someone, I'm talking about when you're in love. Some of us don't know what love is, and that's why we're battling. But if you know what love is, when you love somebody, you love to know that something you did made them happy. You love to know it. It, may, it actually makes you happy. You understand that? That's why every time God blesses us and, and we receive the blessing from God and we smile, man, that thing makes God happy. God says, I love pleasing my wife, like any husband should. But it's nice when the wife can say, you know what? I want to please my husband. And that's what Christ wants us to be as his bride. He wants us to love to please him. And so all obedience comes from the fact that we please him. Well, one of the things that pleases him is he says, take what's been given to you and go give it to somebody else. Go ahead and be faithful now and distribute that wonderful blessing that I gave you and give it to somebody else. I need everybody in this room to understand you are called to work. You are a minister. You are a minister. God has called you to take something he gave you and give it to those whom you have influence around. Now, the truth of the matter is, 
when you receive Christ, this is so true for me, but I don't know if it's true for you, because this is dealing with abiding in Christ in conflict and adversity in ministry. When you accept this message, especially depending on how you receive this message, some of us are excited about telling others what we've learned. But there is a type of conflict that we can run into when we seek to take on the calling of sharing Christ with others. I want to show it to you. The first thing I want you to understand is this. Matthew chapter 16. I want you to look at this principle from Scripture just so we can really understand this groundwork that God is preparing for us. Matthew, the 16th chapter. In Matthew 16, Jesus wants us to understand. When I call you, I'm calling you to do a little bit more than just simply work for me. This part that I'm about to show you is often the part that a lot of us miss when we accept Christ, when we accept his end time message and join his end time church. This is the part sometimes we unfortunately, you know, we mess up. And the Bible says it like this in Matthew 16, right there in verse 24. Look at what it says. In Matthew 16 and verse 24, the Bible says, Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If how many men? If any man will come after me, let him do something. What does he have to do? He has to deny himself and do what else? Take up his cross and follow me. Now, listen, this was supposed to be taught to every single one of us, even prior to our baptism. The life of the Christian is a life of self-denial and self-sacrifice. And a lot of times, again, I, I, I'm, you know, I'm just piggybacking off the things I heard other God's ministers say. But one of the things that Pastor Alvin said that's very important is sometimes we join God's church and it's almost like joining a social club. You know, it's just like this new thing that we're a part of, this crew that we have joined, this organization that we are now a part of. And we sometimes forget that when you profess Christ, when you and I take a stand for Jesus, it is going to be a call of self-denial. It is going to be a call of self-sacrifice. And it's going to go beyond your 10% tithe and maybe that very, very, very weak offering. We're going to have to understand that God sooner or later might elevate you a little bit higher. That you need to understand that if God says to you, I don't want just 10% plus whatever, maybe I want 20% from you. For some people, that's a serious challenge. God may say, all right, I'm grateful that you gave your heart to me, but I'm calling you to work for me. In a more direct fashion, not as a layperson. Maybe he's calling you into self-supporting work, which can be flat out scary if you let it. Or maybe he's calling you to denominational work, which sometimes can be flat out scary if you let it. I've had many pastors come to me and say, Dwayne, uh, the Lord's given you a gift, etc." They said this to me many times. You, you, you have a gift. God's giving you something. Why don't you go to the schools? Go to the schools, get your training, become a pastor. And at this time when they said that to me, I didn't even know about the issues in our schools because I'm brand new, you know? So... I'm not even aware of the issues. I just said, I just don't feel drawn to go, Pastor. I said, if I'm drawn to go, I'll go. But if I'm not drawn, I'm not going to go. Now, it just so happens it turned out, I never went. So 26 years in the faith, and I don't have a degree from any of our schools. And that is not to put an indictment on anybody that has a degree. If you have a degree, God bless you. Just understand, to whom much is given, much is required. You got a degree, use it. Put it to work for the glory of God. Don't gloat over the fact that you're called doctor. Be a doctor and serve. It's like what we have to understand is that if you got a title, then understand the title in the context of Christ and function accordingly to that. But the key is, 
is that when they would encourage me to join these different things and be part of the school, I said, no, I, you know, I'm just not led to do that. But it doesn't mean that God may not lead anybody. I'm not one to tell you don't go. Yeah, I got people today that tell me, Brother Lemon, I'm going to Andrews. I don't say, bro, stay away from that school. That school's of the devil. I don't go around saying, I don't say that, because that's not holistically true. Listen, there's a lot of bad people at Andrews, Oakwood, and Southern, and every other school, but there's also some good people. There's some people who are anointed by God's Spirit, and they are there, and they are holding up the standard, though they go through a lot of trial. And that's why God don't send fire on these schools, because he knows God is not about killing the innocent with the guilty. And so it is that I don't go to people and say, no, don't go to the school. What I'll do is I'll say, did God tell you to go? If they say, well, I'm going because I just want to be a pastor, I say, well, now we got to talk. But if they say, God told me to go, and when a young man tells me God told me to go, I say, tell me how he told you. Because we have a real strange, slick way of taking our conscience voice and turning it into God's voice and saying, God told me when you told you. God didn't tell you anything. God didn't tell you to marry that brother. God did not tell you to marry that sister. And a lot of people are in bad situations right now because they have misplaced understanding their voice with God's voice. And so I question everybody on that. I'm telling you, if any of you ever counsel with me, you will, we go through counseling. If we're going to go through counseling, you best to have your Bible with you. Because I'm going to say, where'd you get that from? How do you figure you say God speaks like that? Show me what God speaks like that. Counseling a couple right now that's getting married. I'm telling you the truth. Over and over and over again, we have told that couple. I said, listen, I'm going to grind you down to dust. But I said, the purpose of doing it is that I want you to get even more than what my bride and I had. My wife and I had no true biblical gospel, present truth counseling. Well, we did not get that. And I'm not blaming the minister. Maybe the minister didn't know himself at the time. I'm just saying, we didn't get it. So now when we go through counseling, boy, when we get, we, we talk about everything. We talk about finances. We talk about relationships. We talk about levels of consecration. We talk about understanding how to run a home. We talk about understanding how to cook. We talk about why does God give us money? What's the purpose of money? We talk about sex, sex, sex. We talk all about it. What stuff should enter into the marriage bed and what stuff shouldn't? Dress, Everything. The point is, is that we need to understand that when we get counseling, there's only one kind of counseling that truly counts. You want to know what that counseling is? Go to Psalms 119. I'll show you. This is the only kind of counseling that counts. This is what I'm saying, is that when we are called, Jesus may make all sorts of statements of calls to sacrifice for us. When we are called to sacrifice, when we are called to deny self, we must make sure that the counsel that we're getting is sound counsel. And notice how the, the Bible helps us with this. In Psalms, the 119th division, I want you to notice what the Bible says as we consider verse 24. Psalms 119 and verse 24. As long as you keep this rule, by God's grace, you will not be misled in counsel. The Bible says in Psalms 119 and verse 24, it says, Thy testimonies are also my delight and my counselors. Now, what does that mean practically? What that means is, God's testimonies. We know that the Bible is called the law and the testimonies. The law, the first five books, the testimonies of God's spirit makes up the rest. So anytime you hear the testimonies, it's talking about the word of God. It says thy testimonies are my delight, but thy testimonies are also my what? The only human counselors you should listen to are the ones that are quoting from the counselors. Once you deal with a counselor that says, I think... And they build their whole practice, their whole ministry. I think, well, according to my experience, you need to be very afraid of that counseling. Because what that individual is doing is making themselves a standard. And that becomes very dangerous. What God wants us to understand is counseling is fine. In the multitude of counselors, there is safety. But you need to make sure that all the counselors that you're counseling with are quoting from the counselors that they're speaking in harmony with God's testimony and not contradicting and not violating. You understand that? Whenever we are called into the body of Christ, Jesus says, you must understand that now that you're coming after me, you must deny yourself. 
you must be willing to take up your cross. You must be willing to bear something that for a time may have a sting to it. It might feel bad to you, but in the end, it's for something better. You see, what was it that enabled Jesus to take up his cross? What was it that enabled him to do? Who remembers? Say again. That's right. Hebrews 12. In Hebrews 12, right there in verse 2, the Bible says, the joy that was set before him, this is why he endured the cross and despised the shame. What was the joy that was set before him? Say again. Seeing us saved. Go to Luke 15. What was the joy that was set before him? Notice this, Luke 15. In Luke, the 15th chapter, notice what the Bible says, Luke 15. Right there in verse 7. In Luke, the 15th chapter and the 7th verse, the Bible says, I say unto you that likewise what? Joy shall be where? In heaven over how many? One sinner that does what? Repents more than over 99 just persons which need no repentance. What was it that enabled Jesus to take up his cross? It was the joy that was set before him. He considered what will be the result of me embracing this cross. This means that when you and I join the church, when you and I take a stand for Christ, when you and I begin to do ministry, you must understand you're going to run into a lifestyle of self-denial, taking up your cross. That cross will appear like a burden, which naturally you want to shun it. This is when God calls you to go from micro thinking to macro thinking. Think beyond the very thing that's in front of you. Think about it. What will this produce in the end if I do this? There are some of us that are very immediate gratification thinkers. You got to break out of that. You cannot just think for the immediate blessing that's in front of you. Sometimes you're going to have to go through a bit of drama and you're going to have to stand for a lot of things. And even though a lot of won't, people won't join you on it, one of the first things God says is consider the joy that is set before you when you embrace whatever this cross is that is being presented to you. Something that does not look pleasurable. You know what's a cross that somebody might have to bear? You're in a relationship. Maybe you got into the relationship and God wasn't the one who organized it. So now God tells you, I need you to do something that appears very bad to you. I need you to cut that person off. You got to tell that man that you can't be with him anymore. You got to tell that girl you can't be with her anymore. Everything inside of you says, I do not want to do that. I really like this person. I really care for this person. God says, I understand, but think macro. Think broader. Think wider. What will be the end result if you stay in this relationship? Continued fornication, continued fussing and fighting, becoming another statistic. God says, you got to think about it. What is this really going to produce? When a man or a woman comes into your life, single people, you got to get to a point to ask yourself, is this person bringing the best out of me and motivating me to become more like Jesus? Or is it doing the complete opposite? They seem to bring every demon in my heart out every time I get around them. God's going to tell you, you need to go ahead and cut that person off. You might have to sever that relationship. You might have to distance yourself from that individual to give yourself time to retract your emotions and get stable again so you can know how to stand and not fall to temptation once you see him and he says, hi, how you doing? Or that girl says, hi, how you doing? You met people like that? We're literally one minute, I'm determined, that's it, the relationship is over. I'm never going to see them again, it's over, it's me and Jesus all the way. And all it takes is that brother to just say, why don't you come by the house? I'll be right there. And Seriously, this is real talk. There are some people that are slaves to their emotions. God is teaching us that we must learn to live a life of denying self. There are going to be times he's going to say, I need you to take up a cross. I need you to take up something that is going to look like it's nothing but pain and bad. But God says in macro thinking, look at the joy set before you. Look at the end result of what will happen if I follow through with this. 
And God says that's going to help you overcome that conflict. That's going to help you overcome that adversity. Don't just look at the immediate trial. Look at what can be produced from the trial. Does that make sense? Jesus wants us to understand when you're called into ministry, you are going to run into conflict and adversity first and foremost with yourself. And as a result of that, how in the world do you overcome this? Number one, Joshua 24. You remember in Joshua, the 24th chapter, that Joshua made a statement that I would trust we all can appreciate. And the Bible says it beautifully in Joshua 24. And I want you to watch this because, again, sometimes the first area of conflict and adversity that we're going to deal with in ministry is with our own selves. The things that God calls us to do that we may not want to do it or be willing to do it. When you run into those emotional battles, God's word is very simple to solve the problem. Joshua 24. Look at verses 14 and 15. The Bible says in Joshua 24, 14 and 15. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in truth and put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the flood and in Egypt and serve ye the Lord. Verse 15. And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, what does he tell them to do? Choose you this day whom ye will serve, whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the flood or the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell. But as for me and my house, we are going to do what? We're going to serve the Lord. God says emotions are real. God says I made emotions. So God understands it. Emotions are real. And there's a lot of things in life you're going to feel to do and feel not to do. But what the word of God does, you see, that's the chief thing Christ wants to abide in us. He says, I want my words to abide in you. And when the word of God comes to us in a conflict, what he says is choose to do what the word says. Choose to do what the word says. It's actually simple. The problem is we've made our lives complex. God says, choose it over and over again. You remember Deuteronomy 30, 19 and 20? I call heaven and earth against you this day to testify against you. And Moses made it very clear. He says, I have set before you life and death. I've set before you blessings and cursings. And then what does he say? Choose life. He didn't say feel life. He said, choose it. And then he showed us who life is, didn't he? In verse 19, he says, choose life that both thou and thy seed may live. Then in verse 20, he says, Follow on to know God, for he is thy life. So he was there saying, choose God. Choose God's way. Choose God's word over what you're feeling. Even over what you're feeling. Elijah, same issue. 1 Kings 18 and verse 21. Elijah says the same thing. He says, look, how long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. If Baal, then follow him. Make up your mind. Choose. It's the precious gift that makes us different from monkeys. Brothers and sisters, what I'm telling you is that God says, when you come to him, the first preparatory step in doing ministry is you're going to have to understand you are now in a war. You know, you're in the army, you're in a war. And the great portion of that war is going to be conflict and adversity with self. That's where it's going to be. Conflict and adversity with self. Ministry is largely made up of what you don't naturally want to do. Because you don't grow if you just do everything you want to do. You don't grow like that. My brothers and sisters, listen. You can go to the gym as a 150-pound man, and you can pick up that 10-pound dumbbell, and you can be like, I will grow my biceps. <laughs> and you could be like, <laughs> and you could be 45 minutes later, you seen all the brothers? Hey, y'all, keep looking. I will grow my biceps. I'm here to let you know you're not going to grow your biceps. You're not going to grow your biceps like that. You got to go from a 10 pound, you're going to have to get to something that's a 30, maybe a 40, 
maybe a 50, something where sooner or later, instead of you being able to pick it up, and just you're going to be like, whoa, okay, all right, Ooh, okay. And now that you're lifting something that's heavy, it's going to start tearing that muscle a little bit. And that's what's going to allow you, when you put the right things in your body, your proteins and whatnot, that's what's going to help tear the muscle and then build the muscle back up and make it stronger. There's going to have to be some level of what's called good stress that has to happen in that weight lifting to ultimately get the muscle structure bigger and stronger. In like manner, Jesus wants you and I to understand it's not going to come through doing everything that's easy. That's not ministry. If everything that comes to you is easy, it's not true development. I'm going to be honest with you. It's not a boasting point. I think Pastor would agree with me. I think Brother Andre would agree with me and others. But, you know, standing before the people of God, I mean, look, y'all show a lot of love to us. You know what I'm saying? In other words, it's not that difficult to minister to a group like this. This is 10 pounds. This is not going to really challenge and stretch the mind. But you go ahead and you go to some of these parts of New England where there's a bunch of people, like in the areas I live in, Western Mass, where there are a plethora of lesbians. Lesbianism is huge in Western Massachusetts. Alongside of general homosexuality, they have something called Rainbow Road. You got these little roads that you walk on and they're multicolored. And it's almost like, hey, if you walk on this road, you might be sending a signal. That's why I'm like, I'm across the street. I'm looking for the white road. I don't want to send no confusion. God is not the author of confusion, neither shall I be. But when you got to stand before those brothers and sisters, and you got to get ready to tell them, thus saith the Lord, knowing that there's been a multiplicity of attacks where Christians get beat up, threatened, possibly even killed. Now you're getting into your 40 and 50 pounds. That's not as easy to do. And so God says, if you're going to come after me, I need you to first understand that as a minister of the gospel, you're going to run into conflict and adversity and it's going to be with yourself. And when you come into those moments where naturally you say, I want to do this, and God says, no, hold the reins. Or when you come to a point where you say, I don't want to do this, and God says, go forward. Those are going to be those moments that, number one, God says, do not consult your feelings. I don't read anything in scripture that Jesus says, go do what I say if, if you feel up to it. God is too wise to Aaron. He knows better than to tell us that last portion. He just says, go forward. Do what I tell you to do. Now, what is another principle that we can add to the going forward? Oh, man, I'd be remiss if I didn't give you this one. Psalms 119. Go to Psalms, the 119th division, and now watch this one. Psalms 119. And I want you to watch what the Bible says, Psalms 119. And now we're going to look at verse 60. And this is a very important principle as well. When you're dealing with the conflict and adversity in your personal ministerial life, God has called you to do something and you are scared, you are fearful, you are concerned, whatever it may be. You have strongholds, you got things in your life that you still love and you're nervous of making a move. God says, all right, number one, remember, you can choose. Even when you have conflicted feelings, you can still make a solid choice. You can know what I say and do what I say. But not only that, what does it say in Psalms 119 and verse 60? He says, I made haste and I delayed not to do what? That means whatever you do, do it quickly. Don't sit down and think about it for minutes and hours. Once you know what God has told you to do, do it. Make haste, do not delay. Think about Nebuchadnezzar, he says to these three Hebrew faithfuls, all right, if y'all don't bow down to the golden image, you're done. You're going in the furnace, and we're going to melt you down. If those brothers would have said, can we have a moment for counsel? And then those brothers come together, listen, did you see how hot that furnace is? I saw a bug fly across the furnace, closed, and it melted. 
What do you think is going to happen to us? You remember what it felt like when you got your skin burnt? If they would have had conversations like that, do you really think that those brothers still would have boldly gone into the furnace? Absolutely not. That's why they said we are not careful in answering this question, O king. And they said it very clear. They said, look, our God, we know he has enough power to totally reverse your command. But here's the even deeper point, king. Even if he chooses not to, we will not bow down to your image and we will not worship your gods. They made haste. They delayed not to keep God's commandments. So number one, knowing what's right. Number two, choosing what's right. And number two, choose it quickly. I believe right now, well, let me ask it to you this way. How many of you got some major problems going on in your life right now? How many of you got some major problems going on in your life? Oh, y'all don't have problems? Man, give me class. I'll sit down. You can stand up here. How many of us got some problems going on right now? Right? Okay. Question. From a scale of 1 to 10, how many of your problems, this is a call for honesty. From a scale of 1 to 10, how many of your problems exist because God has not shown you what to do yet? How many of you would say, scale of 1 to 10, how many would say, 9 out of 10 of my problems are because God has not shown me what to do? How many would say 9 out of 10? Anybody with that? How about 8 out of 10? Okay, 1. How many 7 out of 10? How about 5 out of 10? How about 3 out of 10? How many of us would say the great majority of the problems we have, God has already shown us how to solve it? So why do you still have it? I don't know, man. I mean, in other words, family, this is what I mean when I say I grow tired of preaching. It's like sometimes we need to just cut the mics off and have like a whole circle and just talk. I mean, like, literally, like, just be like, you know what? Forget all this. Here's a mic. Let's go around in a circle and let's talk. Because what I believe is there's a lot of stuff we're going through. We put ourselves in this mess. And we're in this mess and it's beating the daylights out of us. And God has given us counsel and assurance on how to deal with it. And our issue is we are not choosing to let God's word be God's word in our life. We're not choosing it, and we're not choosing it quickly. We're still deliberating and waiting and all this other stuff. God is saying, listen, if you ever want to know what faith is, I taught faith in such a way that even a child could get it. This is what faith is. Jesus comes to a town. A brother has a servant, and his servant is sick unto death. The centurion first sends his guys to go and implore Jesus to come and make his servant well. But eventually he decides to go and he bypasses his servants and he comes to Christ personally. And he goes to Jesus and he says, look, my servant is sick even unto death. Can you help? Jesus says something that most of us would have totally capitalized on it. Jesus says, no problem. I'll come to your house. Now, if Jesus said he would come to your house, would you tell him not to come? You would be like, man, Jesus coming to the house. Nothing will get in the way of this. I mean, we'd make sure that Christ comes to our home. This man tells Jesus, no, please don't do that. He says, don't come to my house because I'm not worthy to have you come to my house. Then he says, but speak. The word only, and my servant will be healed. That's faith. Faith is trusting the word of God only to do what the word of God said it was going to do. That's faith. You think a five-year-old could get that? That's what faith is.
You know, when we start going to Hebrews 11, 1, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. It's like we're just as confused as if we never said that. We don't know what that means. Faith is trusting the word of God only to do what the word said it's going to do. That's what faith is. And that's what that brother said. He said, just speak the word only. And then he dropped the deep one. He said, because I have soldiers and my soldiers do everything I tell them to do. You know, he knew Jesus had soldiers. His soldiers are angels. He said, just speak the word. I know your angels will go by my house and heal my servant. That's why Jesus was like, hold up. Okay, I have not seen this. No, not even in Israel. Type and anti-type tells us that that kind of faith is not going to be common in Seventh-day Adventism, God's last Israel. And so what I'm telling you is that I marvel at how many problems we have that God has already shown us how to solve it. Our issue is simply we're not doing what he says. And the reason we're not doing what he says is because we don't have what that centurion had, trust. Complete trust. Implicit, absolute, unadulterated trust. In other words, he as a Gentile had the faith of Jesus while the Israelites who were preaching it didn't. You get that? And so my hope and my prayer in this first session is to understand we are all called to some form of personal ministry. You did not join this movement to sit and observe and become a spectator. God has called you to be a participant and the facts are the facts. There will be no starless crowns in heaven. If you don't have a star on your crown, it is guaranteed you're not going. And so that's not to motivate us to action because fear should not motivate us to action. It's just a fact that is, needs to be understood. And that's why I encourage you, go back to the cross, find out what was done for you, ask God, do something, ignite a fire in my heart, break down this hard wall that's been built up against you and what you did for me, and soften it, that I might truly appreciate you. And once you embrace that, then God says, no sooner than one comes to Christ and experiences a conversion, there is born in them a desire to make him known to others. Nobody has to beg you. Nobody has to plead with you. You will do it because you recognize a little bit about that pearl of great price that you got. But God says, but understand that when you do go in ministry, when you do embrace the calling, you're going to run into a conflict. And the first conflict you're going to run into is hard, stern battles with self. And when God calls you to do what he calls you to do, you must make sure that you know how to deal with the moments where your feelings do not correspond with God's commands. And so what does God say to do? He says, number one, when you know what I've called you to do, choose this day to do it. He didn't say choose tomorrow. He said choose this day. That means the day you know is the day you should choose. You got that? Then he says, and choose quickly. Don't delay. Listen to me good. I am not encouraging fanaticism. Fanaticism is, I heard a sermon that said, get out of the city into the country. Okay, tonight I'm going to go home and I'm going to choose this day and I'm going to go pack my bags and I'm going to leave my house and when the bank comes calling for me, I'm going to say, sorry, I got to do God's will. And you're going to neglect your bills. You made a covenant to pay your bills. And the, the book of Proverbs says you need to keep your covenant and pay your bills. Don't be walking away from that stuff, talking all that spiritual jargon. That is not biblical. That is fanaticism. We're going to talk about that in our next session. Because fanaticism is a conflict and an adversity that a lot of us run into. So he, don't do that. You're going to have to think through. You're going to have to plan. You're going to have to strategize. You're going to have to counsel. You're going to have to do a lot, which means it may not happen today. But there are some decisions that you can make today. There's some husbands and wives in the room that you have been fussing and fighting and arguing, and you actually know how to put your bitterness on hold. You actually know how to say, listen, we're at SWYC, let's play cool. <laughs> and let's be nice to each other. But as soon as this conference is over, I'm coming to get you. <laughs> that 
is something God says, choose today to make peace with your wife. Choose today to make peace with your husband. Choose today to make peace with your parents. Choose today to make peace with your children. There are some things, my brothers and sisters, that you can do right now, that you can choose right now. And some of you need to, during this little five, 10 minute break before our next session, you might wanna pick up your phone. You might wanna actually go, if you know there's somebody you can call, and just say, listen, I'm not saying our problems are gonna be solved right now, but what I do know is that God has called us to peace and not war. I just want you to know that I am in a state of mind of reconciliation. And by God's grace, I'm gonna fight with everything I got to make sure we have it. There's some wives that that would be like music to their ears right now. There are some husbands that that would be like music to their ears right now. And so there are certain things that I believe we can even do during this break that can prove very, very powerful. Let us meditate on these things. We'll take a five minute break. And then when we come back, we'll jump right back into our next session. Conflict and adversity in ministry in the home. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that innocence died for me. I pray, O oh God, that you will help us to take to heart the tremendous sacrifice that was made on our behalf. And as that love abides within our heart, may we be willing to do the same for you and for others. It is our prayer we ask in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.